what gender identity proposes essentially is that the woman is a castrated man, a man who you know, humiliates himself or degrades himself in certain ways by performing certain objectifying constructs of femininity can then achieve womanhood because women are not thought to have an independent existence entirely separate from men. Women are not seen as full autonomous human beings. Women are still perceived as an extension of men. And that's not a new concept. It's quite old. And we're just seeing it rearing its head again in a new technocratic fashion. Hello, welcome back to the Brendan O'Neill Show with me, Brendan O'Neill, and my special guest this week, Genevieve Gluck. Genevieve, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. I'm really glad to have you on. You are one of the founders of Redux magazine. You're also its chief investigative reporter. Redux has become one of my favorite reads over the past few months. I think it's an incredibly important magazine. Firstly, I enjoy it because it draws attention to so many crazy stories in relation to the ideology of transgenderism. But it also talks about the seriousness of this ideology and the problems that it causes for women and children in particular. So there's lots I want to talk to you about in relation to what you guys cover in the magazine um, and also the general theme that you guys talk about and why you think this issue is a particular uh, an issue of particular concern. But to kick us off, why don't you outline to listeners um, what the idea of Redux is and why you guys set it up in the first place? So uh, myself and Anna Slats started Redux at the end of January of this year. And we wanted a publication where we could focus on safeguarding issues and not have to worry about being micromanaged over pronouns or politics, basically. Um, so we had been collaborating for a few months prior to that on some news stories for a previous outlet. Um, and then we just decided we wanted to try to do our own thing, partially because some of the stories that we cover tend towards the darker side of things, um, especially in regards to crime. Mm -hmm. um, and so there's a tendency for people to sort of avoid some of those details in reporting. And we wanted to be able to focus on that without um, being encumbered by uh, other people's opinions on it. Yeah. And that works very well. I think that it's such an important point that in order to speak honestly and frankly on this issue, one often has to create one's own space in the world in which to do that because so much of the mainstream media on the issue of transgenderism has been brought on board. And so they will use the incorrect pronouns to refer to men as she, and they will avoid certain stories because they think it puts trans people in too much of a dark light or a problematic light. So I think the spaces um, people can create in which there can be a more honest discussion about this issue and the problems it creates, I think that's incredibly important. I wanted to kick off as a way of getting into the issue more broadly, I wanted to kick off with some of the stories you have covered in Redux uh, over the past few weeks. So the first one, this is kind of one that's doing the rounds this week, the, the week in which we're speaking, which is about the Norwegian man who now identifies as a disabled woman. Now, on the one hand, this is amusing and bizarre and indicative of where the cult of self-identification ends up. Uh, on the other hand, it's obviously quite serious too that we live in a world so unhinged that people feel they can identify not only as female, but also as disabled. What do you think that story tells us about the drift of identity politics, generally speaking? Well, in this story, which you have a man who in his 50s suddenly decided to start uh, cross-dressing for sexual purposes, um, this coincided with a period of time in his wife's life where she had been diagnosed with cancer. Um, so he then came out to her about his uh, sexual fetish uh, for cross-dressing and, and wearing her clothes, basically, um, during a time when she was struggling with this illness, which is a pattern that we have seen within stories of women who have been in long-term relationships. Uh, with men who have this transvestic fetishistic capacity. Um, but in his particular case, we have the overlap of something that's called apotmenophilia, which is the uh, eroticization of amputation in particular, of limbs most especially. Um, and so that term, as well as gender identity, were both were terms that were coined by uh, John Money. Um, and so he had noticed uh, the sexual component within apotmenophilia as well, the amputation fetish. 
Jewish. So in his particular case, it really highlights the overlap that can happen from one paraphilia escalating to the next. Um, But I also wanted to highlight the fact that his wife had also worked with children who were themselves disabled and in wheelchairs, uh, which is a striking uh, striking feature to notice about the story, I think. Um, it puts into perspective the sort of uh, identity crisis that's involved within this, but also a sort of attention-seeking behavior. Um, and this story has been drawing a lot of criticism, I think, mostly for the disability aspect that, you, you know, you have a fully a capable man in his 50s identifying as disabled um, can easily just get out of the wheelchair at any time. And so people are rightly pointing out that this is insulting to the disabled community. However, even within the Norwegian press, they had been referring to him with the she, her pronouns. So the element of how insulting this is actually for women is not something that's quite on the table yet. Um, and when he was featured on Good Morning Norway last week, uh, their Facebook page was flooded with comments, um, over a thousand now, uh, criticizing this, um, talking about their own experiences with disabilities. Some disabled people were voicing their concerns. Um, and in some cases, comments have been deleted as well. So then we see this issue of even trying to address uh, this sort of uh, offensive, actually, behavior um, is met with hostility and, and called discriminatory. Yeah, I think that's such an important point that there is this recognition in society, still at the moment, things can change very quickly, as we know, but there is this recognition that it is very insulting and ridiculous and perverse for an able-bodied person to identify as disabled. And lots of people would push back against that in the same way that people push back against Rachel Dolezal and other uh, people who are white who claim that they can identify as black. And yet when it comes to a man identifying as a woman, not only is that accepted, um, but anyone who refuses to accept it, as people like you will know, is denounced as a transphobe and a bigot and a hater. So just on staying with that story for the time being and that particular question, why do you think it, it is that sex in particular, and especially identifying as a, as a woman, is seen as something that is perfectly acceptable and you're not allowed to raise any criticisms of it at all, distinct from most other kinds of identity where we would accept that self-identification was ridiculous. Why in relation to sex, why in relation to womanhood is it seen as something that's perfectly fine for a man to do? Well, for me, it's quite simple. It's that women are not seen as full autonomous human beings. Women are still perceived as an extension of men, or even in some cases as a castrated man, which is what gender identity proposes, essentially, is that the woman is a castrated man, a man who you know, humiliates himself or degrades himself in certain ways by performing certain objectifying constructs of femininity uh, can then achieve womanhood because women are not thought to have an independent existence entirely separate from men. And that's not a new concept. It's quite old, uh, very old. I think even maybe it was Aristotle who had suggested that women were just simply uh, malformed men. Um, so it's a very, very ancient form of misogyny, actually. And we're just seeing it rearing its head again in a new technocratic fashion in, in the sense of surgeries, uh, plastic surgeries, hormones, all of these procedures and performances are just really bringing up that old, old view of women as extensions of men. Yeah, absolutely. Um, okay, there's another story that you guys covered last month, uh, which is incredibly serious, of course, as as all of the stories you cover are. And this is the story uh, from Spain about a man who avoided charges of um, domestic violence after legally changing his identity to female, in quote marks. Can you tell us a little bit about what happened there and what you think this story indicates about how serious this problem is becoming? Yeah, this story is really shocking. Um, We have a situation where a woman uh, is in this relationship with a man who then expresses his desire to grow breasts, um, to take estrogen. But again, as we keep seeing, to not have, quote unquote, the surgery, um, just simply wants to have 
a female appearing body, um, for whatever reasons though, you know, we can speculate about that. Um, and she was opposed to it because, you know, obviously being in a relationship, uh, with a man who then decides to undergo these changes to his body then forces an identity crisis upon the woman who is then in a position where she needs to change her identity to accommodate him. Um, so she vocalized some concerns about this and then he began to become abusive, uh, both physically and verbally. And uh, the situation escalated. Um, basically, he was able to get out of charges related to this abuse by legally changing his uh, identification to, to say, female, um, because under that law, it's specifically related to sex-based abuse. So mm. uh, he was able to get out of that. And moreover, he actually slapped a charge on her for misgendering him. I mean, it's. Uh, I read these pieces, and it they are just incredible. It, it is difficult to believe that this kind of thing is happening, and what's more, that it's happening under the banner of progressive politics. So, people who consider themselves to be on the right side of history and to be progressive people um, are supporting the kind of ideology that allows this to happen, which in this case allows a man to escape charges for abuse simply by lying about being a woman and claiming the female identity. But more broadly, in relation to um, transgender and crime, which I think is an incredibly important issue, here in the UK, we've had situations where we have police forces who will record offences as having been committed by women if the man who committed that offence identifies as a woman. Some police forces say they will even do that in relation to rape. So we have this situation now in parts of the UK where uh, a rape can be recorded as a uh, as a female crime, even though, of course, according to the law of this country, rape is something that only a man can commit. Um, we've had a situation where men have been put into women's prisons because they identify as female, and one of those men sexually assaulted women in the prison while he was there. It really has reached a terrifying level, hasn't it, when we have a situation where even the criminal justice system, even those parts of the infrastructure of society that are supposed to be objective and rational and to punish people according to who they are rather than who they pretend to be, that, that's when we really have a serious crisis on our hands, isn't it? Well, everyone's just so afraid to say no to these men. Um I, I, I don't understand why. Um, there's even a case, I think it's in Scotland, in Polmont Women's Prison, there's a man named Sophie Eastwood who has now begun identifying as a little girl. Mm. And actually, he's requiring prison staff um, to do things like hold his hand or to treat him like an infant. And this is being accepted. Why? Uh, you know, in so many of these stories, even though I, I've looked at them in great detail, I still find myself coming up flabbergasted of why it is that people are going along with this lie to such a degree, to such an, an extent that it almost feels, um, again, I can't help but use the word insulting. So speaking of insulting, there's one more story I want to ask you about before we start to talk about how this new ideology came about, what you think its origins are. I want to ask you about... Um, Glamour magazine in Brazil, uh, they had an award ceremony uh, towards the end of last month where they gave out awards to women, um, but not all of those awards went to women, and including Woman of the Year, which went to a, a, a male influencer. I mean, even when I say those words, I just think, where, how have we arrived in this situation? Of course, this isn't the first time this kind of thing has happened. Caitlyn Jenner has previously won a Woman of the Year award. We've had situations here in the UK where um, a man has won a Businesswoman of the Year award because he flits between male and female identity. So some days he goes to work as a male, other days he goes in women's clothing and says he's a woman. And he was listed as one of the top business women. I mean, this all springs from the same problem, which is, as you've already spoken about, which is this notion that womanhood is a very flimsy thing that anyone can embrace and adopt and claim to be. Uh, but when men are winning Women of the Year awards, I mean, that really does point to the misogyny in this, doesn't it? And there's a blindness to that misogyny in so many uh, commentary circles at the moment. Well, yeah, it, it basically encapsulates this idea that men are better at being women. Men are better at everything, even at, at being women themselves. Um, 
I believe that the man who won that award in Brazil had made a comment uh, suggesting that women don't actually exist, um, that there's no such thing as a woman, which is something that I've seen repeated as well. Um, UN Women, a few years ago, the Twitter account uh, tweeted a quote from a man who said something similar, that women are formless. Um, so there's this concept that women are, you know, just disembodied ideas that exist within someone's imagination. And I really see this as strongly connected to pornography, actually, in a lot of ways. There are so many aspects of this that keep coming back to pornography. But this idea that women don't exist is very, very tied to pornography. I think especially the idea that a woman could have a penis is something that we see within um, transgender pornography. Um, so this whole idea about, you know, sexual fluidity uh, has some of its um, influences within the uh, types of surgeries and procedures that you would see within the porn industry as well. So, okay, let's start talking about um, how this all comes about and how over the past few years and decades, we've had a situation where men can claim to be women. And even more importantly than that, society now uh, bends over backwards to recognize their womanhood, to give them gender identities in law, sometimes even to change their passports, in some nations even to change their birth certificates, to allow the men to enter into women's spaces, to allow them in, to enter into uh, jobs and careers that were traditionally reserved for women in certain arenas. All of this has been happening uh, over the past few years, and I do think it's worth thinking about how this has come about. So one of the things you, you're interested in in relation to the trans issue, which you've just mentioned there, something that you uh, focus on and, and write about quite often, is the issue of pornography and the influence of pornography. So could you just explain in a bit more detail what role you think pornography has played in relation to the transformation of womanhood into this costume that can be worn by anyone who wants to wear it? Well, when we start thinking about the sexualization of surgery, um, that really got going through the pornography industry with things like breast implants. Um, breast implants themselves actually have an interesting origin story that has to do with the sex trafficking of Japanese women. Um, so we see within the procedures in the pornography, uh, the through line of the sex trafficking of women, um, heightening certain aspects of the body that are essentially objectified, um, and a sexualization of body modification itself, um, whether that's, you know, again, the breasts or the buttocks or, or, or lips or any kinds of features that you're really trying to highlight points to a fetishization of that body part. Mm. Um, so I see them as strongly linked in this way. There is somewhat of a, what I would see as a, a sexualization of body modification itself um, happening now. You can see that on social media. But uh, how did we how did we get here? I think it's become normalized through pornography in the private sphere. I think that a lot of these kinds of concepts or ideas about women, um, the objectification of women, reducing women to plastic surgery and to hormones, all has that connection there within pornography. Um, the idea that women don't actually own our bodies, uh, that we don't actually have bodies, that our bodies are constructed by someone else. All are ideas that are found in gender uh, ideology as well. Um, and I really think that we don't fully appreciate the scope of the problem yet. And I don't think we, it's possible to because we don't see it in the public sphere. All we see are kind of the repercussions of this porn saturated culture. And we don't actually see, we don't know what kinds of pornography lawmakers are looking at, for instance. I highly speculate that a lot of people who are pushing the line that women can have penises are watching a certain type of pornography themselves, which I know is a maybe contentious thing to say, but... Um, I, I think it certainly shapes a lot of behaviors and influences society about how we see women. Um, and I've talked with some parents of detransitioners who specifically cited this problem with their young girls, actually, that, you know, they didn't want to be this image that is presented to them now of what a woman is that we're told has to be this hypersexualized, um, always young um a type of object, essentially. Um, and they wanted to escape that. And then also they were being influenced by other types of pornography, such as uh, anime 
pornography, which is a huge influence for a lot of young people when it comes to this as well. So I really think we've barely scratched the surface of what this social experiment of mainstreaming pornography is doing to us all as a society. Yeah, I think it's an important point about the very curious fact that in the past few years, the only place you would have heard the idea that a woman can have a penis is in relation to fetish pornography, pornography that actually featured, I'm doing air quotes as I say this, women with penises. That's where you would have heard that idea. That's where you would have seen it represented. But over time, the idea of women with penises has become increasingly mainstream. We now have a situation where the leader of the Labour Party here in the UK, Keir Starmer, is incapable of saying that women don't have penises. Um, We have a a politician here, Stella Creasy, a Labour MP, who has openly said that some women do have penises. And of course, it's an idea that is accepted uh, across the board. You can even see in the acceptance of men as women, that is an acceptance of the idea that a woman can have a penis. So you've had this shift from an idea that would only have existed in fetishized forms of pornography of a decade ago, now being accepted in the mainstream. And that is incredibly interesting. Um, in relation to the porn discussion. I did a review of Grace Lavery's book, Please Miss, a heartbreaking work of staggering penis, which was really the first time that the um, the, the link that people like you make between pornography and trans culture, it's the first time, reading that book was the first time that became very apparent to me. And it became quite clear that that was the case because the book um, talks a lot about pornography. And then consequently, it talks about the female anatomy in the most reductive, and I would say misogynistic terms, um, in terms of holes and, and so on and so forth. And of course, that kind of language has entered the mainstream as well. People with cervixes, we hear people talk about front holes, bleeding bodies. I mean, this constant reduction of women to orifices and certain biological uh, practices and so on. If there has been an influence of pornography on how people see women, how do you think that happens? How does that work? What is the trickle-down effect of that kind of, of the industrialization of pornography and then the changing way in which people conceive of women? Well, if I may just address something that you just said before that, which is the the front hole uh, term uh, was... The first time I saw it was in 2016 with the uh, Human Rights Commission in the the U.S., and uh, they were recommending it as terminology. Uh, They had a packet called Safer Sex for Trans Bodies, and that was the first time I remembered seeing that term. Um, But most people don't tend to think too deeply about it or recognize the pornographic influence there as well. The uh, FTM, or if you were to think of it as the female to male, I suppose, in that genre of pornography, uh, their anatomy is re- referred to as a front hole, actually. Um, and that's done because the, it's a clear reference to the anus in particular. Mm-hmm. So it, it's defining women's anatomy by reference to uh, sexual receptivity, but in particular to the anus, mm-hmm. which is, again, just astounding that that would be a recommended terminology to apply to all women. Um, And you mentioned Grace Lavery, one of his colleagues that he has been, um, that he's at least spoken with at one conference I know of uh, at a university. Um, I think it was UC Berkeley. Um, This man, uh, Andrea Long Chu, uh, who has written extensively about something called sissy pornography, And has said outright that sissy porn made him trans, actually. Um, And within his writings, he also, again, reduces women to the sexual receptivity. Um, He's said that pornography is the quintessential expression of femaleness. Um, He has said that women's barest essentials are an expectant asshole and blank, blank eyes. Um, And these are things that are found in the genre of forced feminization, also sometimes called sissification pornography, wherein the man is ostensibly forced, but, you know, actually he's a willing participant, but forced to be feminized um, within BDSM scenes. He'll be dressed up in uh, lingerie, uh, forced to put on makeup. And then, you know, the ultimate uh, act of forced feminization, which is the penetration, actually. Um, And this concept is not limited to the U.S. It's also a concept that exists in Thailand, Um, And in some parts uh, among the Hydra in India, 
as well, that uh, a woman exists to be penetrated. It's also found within literature of sexology as well. So it's not limited to the discussion of gender identity, but it is definitely being brought to the mainstream through this way. And do you think this is one of the reasons that in relation to some of the better known men who identify as women, their bodily changes often reflect a view of womanhood as an incredibly sexualized being. And so, you know, there are the massive breasts and the long, 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 long flowing hair and uh, the pouting lips. And it's a very specific image of womanhood that lots of the better known, uh, well-known trans women uh, try to achieve. Uh, do you think that speaks to an, an, an adoption of the idea of womanhood that is incredibly narrow, incredibly focused, as you say, on the sexualized nature of it? And and does that have a knock-on effect? You mentioned earlier that that has a knock-on effect on how girls growing up conceive of themselves as becoming women and what that means in contemporary society. Well, certainly, absolutely. And and some of these girls who have detransitioned have said so themselves that, you know, basically, if this is what a woman is, this idea that's being presented to them of what a woman is, well, so now you have men who are self-objectifying, modifying their bodies in extreme hypersexualized ways, like you mentioned, the exaggerated breasts and so on. And these men are then telling society that this is what a woman is. And they're seen as authorities. They're applauded they're celebrated, um, they're held up as role models even for young people. Um, So the girls will then internalize that message, obviously, and in a much stronger way than than before, than ever before maybe, Um, because if they they wouldn't have been exposed to pornography perhaps at such, such a young age as is happening now, but they also wouldn't have had men on these platforms telling them that this is their destiny, in a sense, um, to become something that is objectifiable, um, that is supposed to enjoy being objectified as well. And so you have young girls who are feeling already struggling with puberty. I mean, God, I remember going through puberty. It's it's an awful time, <laughs> awful time for a young girl enough as it is, you know, and then to have that on top of everything else. Um, it's little wonder why it's um, forcing the dissociation of girls. I actually do see this, this kind of playing out as forcing dissociation onto other people, um, but in a particular onto young girls, having a disconnect from their own body. Well, it's hard to recognize your own body as female if it's not resembling the artificial version of female isn't it? In relation to the discussion of pornography and its influence, I do think the industrialization of pornography is a problem in society. I think most people, well, many people now recognize that. And it does speak to some ills in society, I think, and the ease with which people, including young people, can access even very extreme material is something that I think is very concerning. And it definitely, I think, has an influence on how we think about the sexes, the relations between the sexes and and so on. But there's something else going on as well, isn't there? Because what you've just described might influence how certain men want to become women and how they write about women and how they present uh, themselves as women in the public sphere. But then there's also the question of why mainstream society is so accepting of these identities. So why we have political parties which fall over themselves to recognize the womanhood of men who claim to be women. As we said earlier, a criminal justice system which treats even rapists as women if that's what they claim to be. Everywhere from the Biden administration through to political parties in the UK and other parts of the world, there is this rush to recognize that you can become a woman very easily simply by declaring it. And from that moment on, if anyone refers to you as a man or he, they are the bigot, they are the transphobe, they are the problem in society. So beyond the pornography influence, what is it do you think that makes so many institutions in society play along with this and accept the identities of people which are clearly false identities? Well, I think that there are a lot of theories about this. Um, People who speak about this tend to have their own sort of perspective that they might highlight. For example, some people will highlight, you know, the education sector. Others will talk about academia or something called queer theory. Um, Other people focus more on following the money um, to see how the financial aspect is causing um, policies or influencing policymakers. Um, I, for my part, have been focusing on the pornography aspect, but I do think that 
that they're all sort of intertwined. Um, but ultimately, at the end of all of that, all of those roads lead to power, all of them. There's a, there's a man named Professor Baumeister, who I would recommend, uh, who has a great book called uh, Masochism and the Self. Uh, he has chapter seven, he explores femininity, masculinity, and masochism. And he goes into some detail about the sexualization of power and powerlessness um, that within certain men who fetishize uh, loss of power, degradation, or humiliation, um, as he describes in transvestic fetishism, um, that what they're getting out of it is actually they're, they're sort of being elevated in their power by mocking another group of people. Um, so what we're seeing is that these, uh, and often these men who engage in such practices, who eroticize powerlessness, um, themselves have power. Um, so it's kind of a wanting of something on the other side of things. Uh, so I do think that there have been some influential figures who have played along with this, um, perhaps because they do not see anything wrong with the sexualization of women, of course, but also the sexualization of power. Um, so through their mimicry of status loss, actually, these men are afforded more power than they would have had otherwise, because I suppose now it is somewhat taboo uh, to, to kind of suggest that that men um, do dominate women in society. I mean, it's becoming more and more taboo, I think, um, from where I'm sitting. And so a workaround for that is to say, actually, well, no, I'm oppressed. Um, I'm a woman. I don't have power. And then in that way, they're able to, again, elevate themselves. Okay. I want to ask you about the impact some of this has on young people, which you've, you've already touched on there. But I wanted to ask you about the impact it has on um, young gay people, young lesbians or, or girls who would identify as lesbians in adulthood uh, in the most part, and young and gay boys who would go on to become um, homosexual males. There's a real issue here where we've had growing numbers of young girls in particular, an explosion in the number of young girls who are undergoing hormonal treatment and then... Uh, at an early age, surgical treatment as well, the uh, mastectomies, um, the radical transformation of the body, the voice breaks, facial hair grows, and lots of that is irreversible. And what is clear from clinicians at gender identity clinics in the UK who have subsequently spoken out about this trend is that a lot of these girls are clearly lesbians. Many of them were subjected to homophobic bullying or simply didn't want this identity because it's not cool to be a lesbian anymore. It's not cool to be same-sex attracted. It's all about gender rather than sex. So lesbians and, and young male homosexuals probably feel a bit like dinosaurs in relation to the new queer gender identities. So they've talked about the pressures that these young people feel under because of their sexuality, and therefore they seek a hormonal remedy. So we've ended up in a situation, bizarrely, in the 21st century, where young gay people are essentially being medically corrected so that they become something better and something different. That's a real problem, isn't it? So there's, it's not only a misogynistic influence that comes from this new ideology, but there's a homophobic one as well. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely there is. Um and especially, as you mentioned, you know, lesbian girls, uh, I had seen, um, I forget who said this now, but I'd seen it said, you know, lesbian is no longer uh, an, an identity or a person. It's a porn genre, actually. Um, so again, I'm sorry to bring it back to that, but I, I do think that, again, that's relevant there, um, that women lesbian women have become so objectified again um, that there's a sense that they want to escape that uh, or don't want that for themselves um, or possibly just aren't even able to recognize uh, their own sexuality, perhaps uh, all of those kinds of things as well. Um, but yes, the homophobia is very real. It's a very strong current. Um, something like 80% of those who uh, uh, did not go on to fully transition ended up being um, uh, homosexuals later on in life and completely happy um, in some research that I've seen. So yeah, there is something going on there, which I, th I suspect is different for young girls than it is for, for boys and for young men. Um, I would suspect that there's another phenomenon that's going on with young men in particular. Um, and I think that we're only just starting to see that coming out now with detransitioners, um, uh, 
adult men detransitioners telling their stories from their teenage years and so on, shining a light on that. Um, so I can't speak specifically for, for them, of course, but I would say that for the lesbian girls in particular, um, I just, again, it, coming back to how hard it is to grow up as a girl as already, and then to be struggling, um, with your sexuality on top of that. And then to be told, um, well, they're telling lesbians now that they have to accept male partners again, which is just the most extreme form of homophobia. The concept of the lesbian penis being mm -hmm. forced onto, onto women who, and the cotton ceiling, I don't know if your listeners had heard of that term, which refers to women's underwear. So being the barrier there that, that these men are supposed to, to conquer, to break through, um, it, it's horrendous. And I mean, you know, thank God for organizations like LGB Alliance pushing back against this. There are some groups who are working to highlight the homophobia aspect that are doing some great work, um, and I just wish, you know, more people in, in society would see it for what it is, for the homophobia and for the sexism that it really is. Hi, it's Fraser here, Deputy Editor of Spiked. Have you signed up to become a Spiked supporter yet? Spiked Supporters is our thriving donor community. Supporters can get access to a whole host of perks. And I have an extra special one to tell you about. On Monday, 19th of December at 7pm London time, we have the brilliant Toby Young joining Brendan O'Neill for a special live recording of The Brendan O'Neill Show, and it's exclusive to Spiked supporters. You'll be able to watch the recording online, plus we'll also be taking audience questions. So, if you're already a Spiked supporter, you can register now and claim your free ticket in the Spiked supporters hub. And if you're not a Spiked supporter, you can sign up for as little as £5 per month by going to Spiked hyphenonline.com forward slash supporters and claim your ticket. That's spiked-online.com forward slash supporters. See you there. There was a very good um, investigative report on the BBC a few months ago about young lesbians who feel pressured into sexual relationships with uh, trans women, i.e. men. Um, and their stories were incredibly interesting and very worrying where they were being told that they were uh, genital fetishists because they were only attracted to other women, not to, to men. They were told that they had to overcome their genital confusions. Um, some trans people who tried to sleep with these young lesbians also talked about the, as you mentioned there, the cotton ceiling, which is this incredibly misogynistic and homophobic idea that um, women's underwear are a, a barrier to trans liberation, in, which in this case means the right of men who claim to be lesbians to have sex with lesbians. So a really extraordinary situation. But in, in relation to that, I did want to ask you why there has not been more pushback from mainstream uh, gay rights organizations and also from mainstream feminists. You mentioned the LGB Alliance, which is doing incredibly important work. But most gay rights organizations are now LGBTQ organizations. Uh, they fully accept this new ideology to such an extent that we had a, a situation here in the UK in August when a group called Get the L Out, which is a lesbian organization that is trans skeptical, they went to Pride in, in Cardiff and uh, they had a banner saying lesbians don't like penises, which would have traditionally been thought of as so blindingly obvious it didn't even need to be said. But they were booed and they were jeered and then they were es escorted away by the police for saying lesbians don't like penises. Um, so why do you think there is this acceptance amongst groups that are supposed to stand up for homosexual people or which are supposed to stand up for women's rights? of this new agenda, which obviously has consequences that are problematic for gay people and problematic for women? Uh, well, some people have pointed out that uh, within the movement for equality um, and homosexual rights, that in some regard that that has been achieved uh, with marriage equality and so on. Um, and so perhaps it's been suggested that these organizations needed a new pet project in order to keep up finances and to keep lobbying for something. I see some truth in that. Um, I, I do. I also think that there are social influences as, as well, such as the misogyny within um, some aspects of the community as well. Um, 
And also it's important to consider kind of the history um, too, which uh, I want to bring up Virginia Prince, which is this man who in the 60s uh, was starting this organization called the Tri-S Society, which means the Society for the Second Self. So he was a co-founder of this organization that was primarily focused on uh, heterosexual cross-dressing of a fetishistic capacity and deliberately excluded gay men from their ranks because they didn't want want to have uh, sexuality associated with it. So they were trying to basically clean up their own image um, in order to be able to take this out into the public um, and to have people not think that there was anything sexually arousing about it for them, which there was. Um, And that was their reasoning for excluding gay men. But they also would target housewives in order to kind of condition them to accept their husband's behavior in this role. And I bring him up because he had specifically looked towards the LGB movement for influence. And he had specifically even talked about taking their strategies, um, taking some of their connections um, and their terminology and lobbying for their own movement. Um, And so we see that piggybacking that's happening um, with the the T, the Q, whatever, uh, piggybacking on the wins and gains of the LGB movement um, in a quite destructive fashion. It's ruining some of the gains and goodwill that have been been done. Obviously, it's hurting children Mm -hmm. um, who would grow up to be homosexual themselves. So um, that that. Piggybacking has a history that's gone back for at least a few decades um, within some of these campaign movements. Now, I know that Trias Society was based in the U.S., but there have been similar uh, organizations. I think one in the U.K. is like the Beaumont Society, perhaps. Um, So it's not an isolated uh, incident to just America. It seems to have been something that was thought about and strategized about beforehand. Um, okay, a couple more questions for you. Um, you mentioned their uh, children, and um, we've talked a bit about children in the discussion so far. And that's one of the things that Redux talks about too, not simply about the impact of all of this on, on women and women's rights and women's safety, but also on issues related to safeguarding and, and the safeguarding of, of young people and children. And there has been, hasn't there, an incredible blurring of the lines between adults and children over the past few years. I mean, the obvious examples are um, drag queen shows in schools and libraries, um, where sometimes quite sexualized drag performers will um, perform in front of children, read stories, dance, whatever else it might be. Um, there is, uh, There has been the recent scandal here in the UK about one of the um, uh, advisors to mermaids, the trans youth charity, having been revealed to be at least paedophile adjacent. And he spoke at a conference that was essentially arguing for, I don't know quite how to put it, but basically for paedophile rights or, or for paedophiles to be seen as minor attracted people, as a sexual identity rather than a dangerous perversion. Um, And what was interesting about that case was not simply that one person who was exposed as having paedophile sympathetic views, but also the literature that swirls around all of that, which is the idea that the, the family is a problem, the construction of the child as an innocent is a problem, and we need to dismantle these ideas in order that we can liberate children and have a more free flowing sexual discussion. It does look to someone like me that there is this attempt to bring children on board to some of this um, ideology and to some of these problematic changes that are taking place. And there does need to be a pushback against that in particular, doesn't there? Well, yes. I mean, just from the very basic principle, why would you encourage dissociation among children? Why would you celebrate disliking your body? Why would you prop that up to children as something aspirational um, in this way that, that, you know, Disliking your body to an extreme degree is something that is uh, heroic or even desirable for you as a child, um, which is essentially what they seem to be doing within the education system. You know, there's all this glitter and rainbows surrounding it in ways that are attractive to children. But what we're actually talking about ultimately goes down the road of genital mutilation, to be quite honest. Um, So why would you promote the idea to children that they shouldn't like their body or that, you know, if they don't like their body, let's continue that and let's explore that. Um, uh, It's quite 
it's quite unfair, um, perhaps even abusive, uh, I would say, to, to children to, to condition them in that way to think that, you know, dysphoria is a great thing uh, worth aspiring to. Um, but there does seem to be some pushback mm-hmm. happening. And interestingly, as the pushback is happening, uh, WPATH is doubling down. So I don't know if your listeners are familiar with WPATH, the World Professional Association for Transgender Health, just recently kind of doubled down on their guidelines for the transitioning of children, where they had initially published these protocols um, lowering the age uh, for things such as, you know, quote unquote, puberty blockers, the the euphemistic language being used there, um, but also for surgeries. Um, And then just just a short time after they published these lowered recommendations, they then obliterated them completely. They removed age numbers. So they instead put forward a completely subjective uh, term. So Tanner stage two, which which could be, you know, starting from nine up into 11 years old um, as a recommendation for things like puberty blockers. Um, and so as the pushback grows, we're seeing, uh, we're seeing this again, doubling down on, on what could be done to children's bodies. But I, I want to jump quickly to to a topic of something that I covered a few months ago, which is related to WPATH. I did this um, investigation on a forum that was influencing WPATH protocols. Uh, and within it, there were a few academics who are cited in WPATH literature and specifically in their new standards of care document. Uh, what this forum was, is it's been a community that's run since 1998 that focused on publishing, writing, and hosting uh, child sexual abuse stories, essentially. So these are stories that involve the castration of children, uh, the sexualized castration and sexual abuse of children in particular. Um, So things including surgeries as well as Lupron being specifically named uh, within the forum. Um, So chemical castration, Lupron being one of the most commonly prescribed puberty blockers in the United States. Um, And so they were hosting, creating these, these stories Um, Over 3,000 of them involve the theme of minor or of children. And uh, one of the lead academics uh, of this this forum uh, was invited by WPATH to speak in 2009 at a conference in Oslo and present his research. The research he had conducted from surveys with members of this forum. So basically getting their opinion about certain medical terms that they would prefer to see uh, to represent themselves and their community. Uh, we're talking about men who are fantasizing about sexually abusing children being represented within <laughs> within academic research here, um, presented by WPATH. And, uh, and Nothing happened. Uh, I released that investigation through Redux. Uh, nothing happened. Uh, uh, barely anyone will touch it. Uh, no mainstream media will cover it. It's, it's too, too uh, I don't know, grotesque perhaps for, for most people to digest. Um, and Tom Johnson was speaking last month at the WPATH Symposium as well on the uh, eunuch gender identity, which he imagines that young girls could now identify as eunuchs as well, uh, given that they don't have a penis. This would be something easier for young women to identify as um, as a castrated male. I mean, it is extraordinary. And um, I think that's why Redux is so important, because you guys are bringing to attention these kinds of stories that other people don't touch. And that does bring me on to the final question I wanted to ask you, which was about the issue of freedom of speech on this whole issue. Um, Because it seems to me that one of the key problems in all of this is the unwillingness of people to speak openly about it or the unwillingness of people to dissent in any fashion at all from the idea that men can become women, from the idea that it's good to put young people on a conveyor belt of hormonal and surgical uh, alteration. All of those things are accepted as good coin. And more importantly, they are protected from questioning and criticism by an entire scaffolding now of censorship. You will be denounced as a transphobe, as a turf, which really now means which uh, in the in common language. You might be prevented from speaking on a university campus. You might be shunned from polite society. I mean, it, there, it is incredibly difficult for people to speak out on this issue. 
uh, you have got around that by creating your own world, your own magazine, which brings these stories to light. And I think it's widely appreciated by lots of people. How do you think others might be able to push back against the culture of censorship and particularly the demonization of women? I mean, the J.K. Rowling incident <laughs> highlights this better than any, any other example, where women who speak out are treated in the most extraordinary fashion and demonized um, in the most extraordinary way. How do you think people can push back against that culture of censorship, which makes it very hard to raise the kinds of questions that need to be raised? You know, I don't really have a clear answer for that. I think it's different for everybody in the different ways that the various means that we can go through talking about this or addressing this. But I actually think one of the most important things is to talk amongst yourselves or with your friends or people that you care about um, in order to to break through that, that wall, whatever it is, that impenetrable line between even talking about this. I mean, because I've had a friend, I tried to bring it up two years ago, and she just completely um, closed her ears to it. She physically... <laughs> said she didn't want to talk about it and covered her ears, you know? Um, so we have to get through that first, whatever that is, whatever that takes. Um, so speaking to people you care about, ask, just ask the question of, you know, do you think humans can change sex or why does that matter? We're being presented with a fundamental question of humanity. I mean, this affects everybody, really. This affects reality. Are we going to allow our reality to be defined by external forces? Are we going to have um, a fantasy codified into law. Um, these are all really serious and important questions. So if we can just take the steps amongst ourselves to discuss this more openly, try to get other people more comfortable to, to do the same, try to provide the, the vocabulary and the, the knowledge and the language for how to discuss this appropriately in ways that, um, you know, we don't have to be so dramatic. We can, we can, we can, be mature about this, but we really need to address it um, very, very quickly because the immense harm that it is doing that we've already discussed about, you know, the medical harms to children in particular. Um, so this is really an emergency uh, when it comes to safeguarding um, of children, not only children, though, because we are seeing um, male rapists being placed in women's prisons, as you had mentioned. Um, so we really need to start being the adults in the room, start acting like we are, and um, and put up with the discomfort that this is going to cause because it, it needs to happen. Society needs to really question what it is that we're doing here. Genevieve, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to The Brendan O'Neill Show. We'll be back with another guest and more discussion. Don't forget to subscribe. And in the meantime, keep reading Spiked at www.spiked-online.com.